Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. Back this week with a special bonus episode, we decided we'd sneak in a little bit of extra material from our conversation last week with Vadaka about Buddhist economics. Regular listeners will no doubt by now have heard Vadaka's really stimulating discussion about his book, The Buddha on Wall Street. And it kind of was Buddhist critique of neoliberalism, but more deeply even than that, a Buddhist look at money, economics. What can we do to move towards a more just world, a world where Buddhist values around possessions, money, etc. might come into play? Last week's conversation was mainly focused on the economics of the world before the pandemic. And this week we're picking things up on the other side of that coin, as it were in the post-pandemic time that we're sharing. And as usual, as you settle down to listen, we hope you're doing well wherever you are. We hope you're safe and that your loved ones are safe. And we hope that you enjoy this extra bit of conversation about Buddhist economics, a nice little short bonus episode of the Dharma Toolkit to help you get through the week from your community around the world. So we'll pass back to Varika and Parmi in conversation about economics. Be happy to hear whatever response you've got to that, Vedika. The point Parmi just made about well-being. It's quite interesting to contrast well-being with the welfare okay. state. If I can just talk a little bit about the pandemic, and I've already talked about, and Parmi has talked about, and you've talked about, Chandra Dasar, about community and the importance of community and how that's coming through and is manifesting in actual practical examples many people getting involved at community level. But the other thing that's alongside that that I find really striking that has challenged my thinking is to do with the internet and the web and what I call the attention economy. Because when I wrote The Buddha on Wall Street in 2014, I was taking, I think, a stance that was very critical of the effect of the internet and the web and social media on real community, that you couldn't replace real community with virtual community. And this was exacerbated because, of course, for the last 20, 30 years leading up to 2014, there was a tremendous decline in levels of community participation across the Western world. And my fear was that the internet and the web would exacerbate that problem. And of course, what's happened with the pandemic is that so much of the community organization and initiatives, brilliant initiatives that have happened, have been facilitated by that very same thing, the internet, the web, social media, and so on. It's a dramatic turnaround. And it's as if we are seeing very clearly for the first time the potential for social media, for the internet and the web to really play a hugely positive role in helping to develop a sense of community in a very practical way. And that, I think, is quite a transformation, quite a transformation. That was something I wanted to touch upon. I'll come back to well-being later. Maybe you want to respond to that. It was certainly a big theme in some of the early episodes of this podcast was just being in a community that in a way has been largely resistant in the past to the idea of meaningful experiences of community or Buddhist practice to be had online. 
and then suddenly everybody being forced into a situation where there was no choice. That's your option if you want to practice with others, if you want to share with others, that's going to be your context at least for a while. And what's been very heartening is seeing, for a lot of people, the surprising explosion of different positive experiences of how that goes. Listening to Kamala Sheila talk about running an in-depth retreat for very committed members of our community and just how meaningful the exchange can be about quite deep meditation practice week upon week upon week. You're also just talking to people and, and hearing their sense of heightened imaginative connection as a key aspect of their daily sense of connection to Sangha, to a Buddhist community. And the fact that they've never had to do that kind of work before as part of their mental landscape to stay connected. And suddenly, not just people appearing on their Zoom screens every day, but the practice of meditating together in the morning. You know, that response to reality where you show up smile at each other and then sit silently for 40 minutes. It's almost like something out of an early Buddhist sutra, you know, somebody coming across the assembly of great monks in the clearing in the forest who are all silent. <laughs> That's their response to a reality. You know, it's like there's a kind of direct heart line all the way back to that. So it has been quite positive in a way to see the world, as you indicate, noticing all the possibilities and starting to actualise them. I was just sort of laughing listening to you because, yeah, I think... There's been a real turnaround in how people are responding to and understanding the place of the internet. I think for a long time I've seen the place that the internet can play in creating community because of my experience with Latin America particularly, where the physical landscape, the geographical problems are huge. You know, We've got somebody in Patagonia practice and she's a mitra that's asked for ordination. And nearest Sangha is, I don't know, 3,000 kilometres away or something. So for quite a while, the whole thing of virtual groups, virtual chapters, virtual coming together has played quite a big part in the community that I'm involved in quite directly. So I've been interested to just see the shift in that happening through Tree Ratna more generally. In the Buddha on Wall Street, I talked a fair bit about inequality. And I think that what the pandemic is throwing up now is highlighting the different forms that inequality takes. So one of the forms it takes is the precariousness of many people's jobs, the insecurity of their income. What's it called? The precarity or the precarity. I'm not sure how you pronounced it. That there's a whole massive number of people living and earning their employment, earning their wages in that sort of area and how devastating this pandemic has been for them. Now, of course, other areas have opened up, you know, like food deliveries and so on. But but generally speaking, it's highlighting another part of people's insecurities, that there is suffering and insecurity in the world today, much more than there was in the past. Even if you have a job of certain kinds, it's not guaranteed that that job is going to be there in a few years' time. I think the pandemic is highlighting that very strongly. How might we offer something to people like that? How might we offer something? And maybe there is something there through the internet and so on that could be offered. I don't know. I mean, it's just an idea, but that's another area that is of concern to me. It's quite interesting relating to that in terms of the Buddhist tradition of team-based livelihood, which is a thing that Trinan has been experimenting with for over 50 years now. In our particular context, in the team that I'm part of, it's been quite heartening to be with a bunch of people who are primarily motivated by the value that they can find in their work rather than 
money. And at the same time, we're able to respond by helping them identify what their needs are and be able to meet them. And in this particular time when we're obviously busier than we were before, because all of our work is online, starting to be able to bring people in who are either furloughed or laid off from their normal work and finding that sense of, well, the internet can facilitate other kinds of teams. We don't all need to be in the same place or in the same time zone. We're doing quite diverse kinds of work. And because we're not all trying to earn as much money as possible in that classical sort of neoliberal way where it's me at the centre of it all economically, without an explicit discourse about the collective, there is a collective element to the team and there's a mutual care going on all the time. And at least within our small, very small sphere, we are able to respond to people's economic needs. Whether that can model at scale is a big question, but it is interesting being on an internet starts to look a bit like the solution feels a bit sometimes like the solution. It was interesting, Parmi, hearing you talk about well-being and the whole kind of well-being economy. We've been getting emails from people on our team asking how we're contributing to the well-being economy at the moment. And as a Buddhist team providing resources online, I'm quite struck by, in some ways, the contrast, in some ways, the parallel between the well-being economy and what used to be known in the UK, at least as the welfare state. The idea that it was good that we had a collective approach to well-being. And it's sort of sweet watching people rediscover the notion via the internet, the idea that we might all join up together and promote collective models of well-being. Farika, you've come out of a background where the welfare state was first taken for granted, then in a way lost, or at least lost sight of its value. Presumably the future isn't just going to look like a recapitulation of the past when it comes to well-being and that sort of collective element to it. What are your thoughts on where we could go after the pandemic? I know you don't have a panacea for us all, but... Okay, so I think one has to remember that what we call the welfare state in the UK arose out of a lot of community discussion during the Second World War. In other words, it arose, it was like a groundswell coming up from below. And okay, it was given a voice through one or two official reports and so on, the beverage report, and what have you, but there was a groundswell, a very strong groundswell of community organizing and discussion that actually dated back to the 1930s, but carried on and intensified during the Second World War. So there was this very strong identification with it as something that people needed and wanted. And to some extent that has been maintained, but it's become increasingly distant. It's become in many aspects privatized. So different parts of the welfare state have been privatized off and so on. And now, of course, with the pandemic, you have this situation where the jobs of many people that have been totally undervalued in terms of the pay that they receive for years and years and years have been shown to be the truly essential jobs. Not just doctors and nurses, important though they are, but the caretakers and the cleaners and all sorts of people in the NHS, in care homes, garbage collectors, and so on. All these kinds of jobs have been shown to be absolutely essential. And it throws up very strongly this conflict, if you like, between the jobs that are clearly valuable and the pay that is given to them. So I was reading today an article where someone was saying, well, if hedge fund managers disappeared tomorrow, who would know? Who would know? But if the garbage collectors disappeared tomorrow, we'd know about it very quickly and so on. So there is interesting possibilities at the moment where people are realizing how we value each other's work, how we measure 
prosperity and well-being in a community for individuals and collectively. There are real possibilities there at the moment because the pandemic is throwing up lots of questions. And I'm not saying that it will necessarily end positively because it could easily be forgotten about quite quickly. It could become a political football being kicked around and could be lost sight of. But I think there are real possibilities there that people are questioning. I was reading today, I couldn't believe this, that I can't remember which class of workers it is in the NHS who had been working like crazy in the National Health Service, protecting people and caring for people, some of whom have lost their lives, and they have to pay for the privilege to do it. And that's being extended. What on earth are we coming to? Never mind Buddhist values. This is basic value. So I think these are really interesting questions and important questions that are coming up. And we have every right, in a way, not to be angry in the sense that we feel hatred or anything like that, but we should feel passionate about these kinds of issues. We should feel passionate about them. How we measure well-being these are really important questions and they're up in the air now. Yeah, I've recently just joined up to something called the Common Wheel, which there's various groupings around that, but the one that I've particularly joined up is one that's been run by the SNP, the Scottish National Party here in Scotland. And they're looking at how we come out of the pandemic, talking about things like a universal basic income, whether that is a helpful thing to have in society or not. And also just recognising the complexity of that and exactly what you've just said, recognising the disparity between the essential nature of some of the work that's been done and the pay that people get for exactly that work. There are definitely initiatives arranged to look at how we have a fairer or more just society as we come out of the pandemic. But my fear, like yours, is will everybody just forget within a few months and it'll just slip back into... This is how it's always been. And I really, really hope that it doesn't. And I really hope we can find a way as a community, at least some of us as part of our Buddhist community, of participating in those dialogues and those discourses. There are values that we've got, I think, that are very much in line with some of the values that have been looked at in these more political kind of spheres. So I don't know whether you've any response to that. I agree. I mean, I think actually the issues go quite deep. One of the things that I was trying to bring out very strongly in the Buddha on Wall Street is this debate about what is human nature? Is it basically selfish or are we basically kind? And it's a wonderful coincidence. For me, it is a wonderful coincidence that today, as we're having this conversation, one of my favorite authors, a man called Rutger Bregman, who wrote Utopia for Realists, is publishing today a book called Humankind, Human kind. And it's precisely about this issue, about, as he says, basically, humans are pretty decent people. He understates it, but lovely, pretty decent people. And what's interesting is, because I track how a book like this get picked up by the world's press, and it's getting massive attention. I mean, really big attention, being reviewed in all sorts of newspapers on right and left, and I think it's come at a very important time, which is that what we are dealing with is what kind of people are we? What is our basic nature? What do we value? And this is an opportunity. And I'm really pleased because he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. And his book, I'm sure, will be, it's already being said that it will be as popular and as well read as Yuval Harari's Sapiens, for example. 
it's that kind of possible publication. For me, I'm pleased. I'm pleased that this is happening right now. Interesting when you're talking about kindness. A wee quote from the Scottish First Minister this morning in her daily briefing, if I may, talking about the fact that it's Mental Health Awareness Week and the theme of that is kindness. So she's saying that's especially appropriate. Kindness should be one of the core values of any good society. And I suspect, as most of us have experienced in recent weeks, even small acts of kindness can make a huge difference to the way someone is feeling right now. I just thought that was great. I thought even just one sentence out of that, kindness should be one of the core values of any good society. So I'm up for that. Actually, earlier in this crisis, one of the most surprising and actually moving statements made by a politician for me was a conservative politician, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, when he said, when this is over, what we will remember, what we should remember is the small acts of kindness and compassion. And I was really struck that he said that because he didn't have to say that. This was in the government press conference. And judging from his demeanour, he was being absolutely sincere when he said that. And I thought something has got through and that was important. So it's not just our favourite politicians who are affected. I think people in different political parties are affected in positive ways. One of my best friends has a completely different political standpoint to me. But actually, we have really interesting, creative discussions. He and I, we entered our first Buddhist class on exactly the same night in Sheffield. So we've been brothers ever since then. Of course, we come from totally different backgrounds in terms of economics and so on, and have different political perspectives. But actually, we can have reasoned conversations and very good conversations sometimes, listening to each other. I think actually one of the jobs of someone at the Buddhist Centre Online is to do a broader exemplification where people don't need to agree with each other, but they can yeah. still find common cause yeah. in something deeper. You know, yeah. whether that's Churata's past, which is an area that polarises people, or whether it's economics or climate change or whatever it is. The right kind of exemplification based on friendship, I think, can actually be quite encouraging for people to see. Because they probably have all sorts of conflicted views about different things that are complex. And yeah. when they see you just witness to people's friendship and there's all the spice of the debate and the dissent and all the rest of it, I think there's something about that that is part of what we've got to offer, you know, because yeah. it's not simple. No, no, it isn't. Well, the opportunity for kindness seems like a very good way to round off a conversation that could probably run on. Maybe we'll revisit this. We'll talk about some other ways to have this conversation, maybe bring other people, other voices into the conversation too. I'm sure people listening will have lots of responses, views, maybe some creative ideas for a conversation about what do economics look like, and particularly this open question of how as Buddhists can we exemplify, make a difference, actually impact communities of beings of whatever class when they're suffering, when they're looking for something to live their lives on. So I'd like to thank you, Parami, for coming along and bringing your radical left-wing wit to our conversation. Thank you, I think. <laughs> anyway, thank you. And thanks to Vatica, of course, our main guest today. You can read Vatica's fantastic book, The Buddha on Wall Street. We'll put the link to the book in the show notes. 
it's well worth your time. And hopefully today you've got a bit of a sense of some of the thesis of that book and also some of Vatica's more recent thinking. So thanks to you, Vatica, for coming along and just sharing your perspective with us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I think we could talk all evening. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Great. Well, we will investigate other ways to have further conversations with Vatican and others about these kinds of issues because they really matter. We hope that wherever you are listening to this kind of conversations, at least help in a bit, connect with other people, connect with a sense that you're not alone in the particular challenge of your pandemic, your particular conditions that you're in. As ever, you can continue to meditate with others every day, if you like, on thebuddhistcenter.com forward slash toolkit. You'll see the page for online meditations currently twice a day. And we'll be back with more stories, voices in this podcast regularly through the next little while. And as usual, we're all bearing you in mind. We hope you're well. We hope your loved ones are well. And we look forward to hearing from you, seeing you on social media, sitting with you in the mornings, if you can make it. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Take care for now.